the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the second hour of The George Show. Jimmy Sangenberger filling in for George Brockler, day number two. And, of course, back in the saddle tomorrow morning from 6 until 9 with The Jimmy Sangenberger Show right here on Denver's local talk leader, News Talk 710-KNUS. So great to be with you as we shift gears from the politics of a dysfunctional U.S. House of Representatives into the war in Israel and Gaza. This would be, of course, the consequence of Hamas launching an unprovoked, brutal attack, terrorist attack on innocent civilians in Israel. I mean, I, I still am just marked by coming on the air for my show on Saturday, October 7th. And our boss here at the station, Kelly Michaels, was covering the board for me that day, producing the show. And he said, have you seen the news about Israel? And I said, no, I hadn't yet. And I went online and boom, it's what we talked about a good chunk of the show and I will never forget when I learned about the music festival. And as a musician who plays harmonica, who loves going to concerts, to see that 260 people who were at a music festival for peace get slaughtered and many more kidnapped and taken hostage by Hamas, let alone what's happened to the women and children who have fallen victim to Hamas's terrorism, I mean, it is all abominable. And Joe Biden, President of the United States, last night addressed these issues of the war in Israel as well as the war in Ukraine. And here's just a little bit how he closed that speech last night. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. In moments like these, we have to remind, we have to remember who we are. We are the United States of America. The United States of America. And there is nothing, nothing beyond our capacity if we do it together. Now, what is happening on the ground in Israel and Gaza? What is the situation like from a military standpoint? I'm really pleased to be able to get expert insights from a retired brigadier general of the United States Air Force. For 35 years, he served in the Air Force. He's a career fighter pilot. Last five years of his time serving our country was commanding the 127th Wing of the Air National Guard, along with commanding the Selfridge Air Base in Michigan, and he is, which is home to 4,500 active guard and reserve military and civilian personnel. He has extensive experience. And uh, just to be clear, it was the Selfridge Air National Guard base in Michigan. And Brigadier General retired, Doug Slocum, joins me now. General, welcome to the program. Really appreciate you taking some time today. 
Well, Jimmy, thanks. I appreciate the time to talk and uh, look forward to to looking at some of the, the issues that are going on there in the Middle East right now. Yeah, it is a complicated and tenuous situation, to be sure, not to mention the barbarism. I'll just start with the broad question. How are you looking at this war right now as we get just about two weeks into it? Well, as you can imagine, it's a very complicated situation. You did a great job there of describing you know, what happened this uh, surprise attack that came from Hamas, from Gaza into Israel itself, clearly catching Israel off guard. Uh, their response um, at this point has been primarily, uh, as what we can see, is at arm's length, uh, using uh, artillery, using air power, using ways to reach in and to be able to attack the infrastructure in Gaza. Uh, I think Israel you know, once they they had this reflective reaction of wanting to do something immediately, uh, strategically realizing that what's going on in Gaza is a little bit of a Kobayashi Maru, uh, you know, hearkening that uh, Star Trek uh, simulator, Captain Kirk, I can't solve this problem uh, conundrum. Yes. Uh, that they're looking at an area that's, you know, 30 miles long by about six to seven miles wide on average with two million people who can't get out. Now you have the civilian population, you have hundreds of hostages, um, and you have a very capable military, but uh, how do you, you know, rescue hostages? How do you target just Hamas within this large morass of humanity that's out there in Gaza? Um, and I think they're, they're realizing that they have to take their time. Um, just like we did in the first Gulf War, there's this long period of let's say, call it sculpting the battlefield the way that you want uh, with infrastructure, with, uh, you know, psychology um, to go from phase one, which is this kind of keeping things at arm length, to phase two, where it's going to be up close and personal. If, you know, the Israeli uh, IDF goes into Gaza itself is going to be a whole new uh, realm of this conflict. And they realize that's going to be very, very difficult in ways we can talk about. One of those ways is, of course, the tunneling system that they use in Gaza. Uh, the, the Hamas, this is one of the ways that they get into Israel. This is one of the ways that they transport people as well as their items and weapons and so forth. How does that complicate things that you just mentioned a little bit about the, the growing uh, emphasis on what do you do next in terms of whether you do a ground invasion or what have you? How does that fit in this tunneling system from your standpoint? Well, in the military, we have this tendency, we always talk about preparing to fight the last war. Um, what we found when uh, Hamas attacked was they were very ingenious in employing uh, tactics, techniques, weapons, and all that, was, that were not expected. Um, kind of like, you know, going back to the 1973 war and the Suez and the Barev line and the fortresses and all, uh, which is kind of a thin uh, eyes and ears sort of a, a barrier on the Suez that Egypt uh, very ingeniously was able to circumvent uh, and surprise Israel. Well, in the same case here, a very automated, low-manned type of a system along the border there, uh, they were able to plan, execute, and use tactics and all that completely caught Israel by surprise. They were able to breach these defenses, blind their eyes in a way that uh, allowed them to be, from their perspective, very effective at crossing the border and causing the damage in Israel that they did. Uh, 
call it the, you know, the complete lack of humanity. Um, well, we have to realize too that, you know, Hamas is not militarily on par with Israel by any stretch of the imagination. You want to put anything on paper, uh, Israel would just simply wipe them off the map. But we're dealing with it. You know, there's always a complicated situation. Uh, and here, I guess, probably the term lawfare would probably be most appropriate, which is this is a PR battle in a lot of ways. And we're seeing this played out, for example, with what's going on with that hospital strike, who really did it, you know, trying to affect opinion perspectives uh, and to turn your adversary into the enemy, not through weapons, but with information. It's so profound that you would raise this point, Brigadier General Retired Doug Slocum, talking about the PR battle. And let's look more at the hospital, as you mentioned. Um, Just a few days ago, this blast happened at a hospital uh, that the Palestinians say killed more than 500 innocent people. And in the beginning, there were all these reports, oh, this was an Israeli airstrike. But what we then learned is that it apparently was Islamic Jihad, another jihadist terrorist group affiliated with Iran that had launched a series of rockets into Israel, and one of them misfired and ended up hitting the hospital. And Israel was waiting until they could get a little bit more details to say confidently, this is what happened. They did. They put it out there, tried to clear up that misinformation. Then the U.S. government bolsters that. In fact, we heard mention from President Biden last night in his speech saying it was not Israel that did that strike. And yet we continue to see all of these claims, including from Americans, even members of Congress, saying otherwise and casting doubt on the facts as we now know them. How significant is it when you have an incident as tragic as a hospital blast like that, killing people, and then the word gets out, oh, this was Israel, and the train is going and you can't just stop it? Well, you're exactly right, because it was, you know, once the strike happened, once they got the word out, uh, you know, the cork was out of the bottle from the information perspective. You can show all the facts you want, but people are going to want they're going to listen to the information source that they want to, that they're favorable to. Uh, it's kind of human nature. It's just like here in the United States, which news uh, you know, broadcast you listen to uh, is going to, you know, based on your perspectives of things, it's who you're going to favor. Um, you know, they showed the facts uh, as presented there. Uh, the president I was very surprised, came out with a pretty strong statement in support that, you know, indeed, the U.S. intel services showed that it was not, uh, you know, Israel that caused this particular incident. Um, But at the same time, that didn't sway a lot of the folks who are already out protesting, um, getting on the news, talking their their talking points here. And I think we're going to see more of that as as this progresses, especially if there's the ground invasion that happens in Gaza itself. Uh, we're going to hear the stories about the mosques and the, the, you know, the children and all those types of things are going to proliferate uh, and dominate. So in a lot of ways, this battle is going to be a battle for uh, opinion, for, you know, the, the, the airwaves of or I guess it would be uh, the Internet nowadays um, of what's really going on. And as we've seen, uh, there's pictures of talking about the, the hospital strike and it's accompanied by pictures of things that aren't even there, you know, pictures that have nothing to do with that particular site. So if you wanted to call it misinformation, uh, it's rampant. 
and there's not really a way to correct that nowadays. Um, and you end up with people pointing a lot of fingers, yelling at each other, and the, the situation spirals out of control like a, you know, kind of a self-licking ice cream cone, if you will, pretty quickly. The Israeli Defense Forces are formidable. They, uh, of course, are bolstered by the Iron Dome system that Israel has. But in terms of their capacity to fight Hamas, uh, that's and and this kind of war, and you were touching on that a little bit ago as well. Uh, how do you assess, especially having worked with the IDF in the past, how they're approaching this so far and what their capabilities are in this kind of a war where especially you are talking about a lot of innocent civilians who are among uh, the the terrorists in Gaza where you have the use of places like hospitals, quite frankly, as cover, as human shields for the terrorists. And then you have to figure out, okay, how do we launch these strikes, minimize the casualties of civilians and so forth? From your experience with the IDF, assess their capacity, how they approach things and so forth. Well, yeah, the IDF... um is a very unique structure in the fact that their standing army is just a small portion of the IDF. Uh, they're full-time. The, the defense of Israel is based on their very large and capable reserve system. Uh, so you have people that are all you know, involved in the economy uh, all across the country uh, who served in the military or have military training who, when called, then can pick up weapons, uh, report to uh, the military bases then, and be mobilized. Uh, to defend the country. So what we saw when this happened is that, you know, the small standing army, one, clearly got caught flat-footed in this case. Um, The second was that they had been infiltrated. And number one was to try and prevent loss of life, any further loss of life, um, and basically make sure that Israel itself was secure. So a large portion of what we've been seeing is, let's call it a recovery effort, licking the wounds to try and, one, confine Hamas back to Gaza as they mobilize. So they go from tens of thousands of troops to hundreds of thousands, you know, over 300,000 at this point that have been mobilized. So it takes a while to, if you will, spin up that capability. Uh, The more advanced notice they would have had, the more they would have been able to do that. But clearly it's been that mobilization. Uh, Then the other aspect, of course, is information. Uh, you can't just strike back without knowing what you're striking at. Uh, so what is the status of the intelligence services? Um, you can only see so much from the air, which is clearly dominated by Israel. Uh, but as you mentioned, the tunnels. How do you find out where the tunnels are within Gaza? Uh, Israel learned pretty quickly that the tunnels into their country were a danger, and they built some pretty effective barriers and systems to be able to detect that. But once you get within Gaza itself, it becomes this networked underground capability. And of course, Hamas has gotten surprisingly sophisticated weapons, both in terms of quantity as well as quality. Um, we've been reading in the news how North Korea, uh, North Korean weapons have been uh, found pretty uh, prolific in by being used by Hamas to include uh, surface-to-air weapons, anti-tank, uh, certain types of mines, etc. cetera. Uh, so the question is, from what Israel knows about what is it that they don't know uh, about and what kind of surprises are going to be there going forward. Yeah, for a moment, let's talk, if we could, Brigadier General Slocum, about 
the IDF being caught flat-footed, Israeli intelligence failures here, because it raises questions not only about how did this happen, which the Israeli government has basically said, we're going to address that after right now we're focused on fighting this war, but it also implicates that question of, how much don't they know about Hamas and what they're set up to do at this point and their capacity and, of course, the positions maybe of their resources? Uh, how how do you examine that aspect of this, given the significant intelligence failure that we haven't seen, by my understanding, for Israel since 1973? Well, you know, you're exactly right. And I think that's what Israel's trying to do now is to, to paint that picture, to have an accurate understanding of what it is they're facing uh, from their adversary in Gaza. Um, they clearly didn't have a complete and a whole picture, even if they knew the orders of battle, uh, you know, the types of equipment and supplies and everything that had been flowing in prior, uh, the planning for and the execution of uh, this raid um, Clearly, they were not prepared for it at all um, or very, very minor other than, you know, their day to day type of thing. So there will be a reckoning of that. And there was just like you said, in 1973. Um, But I think all of Israel realizes that at the time of crisis is not the time to address that right now. It's, uh, you know, the call to arms in Israel, the declaration of war, the solving the problem of Hamas and eventually probably Hezbollah and others um, that have been this growing threat that have now stepped over that red line for uh, the IDF. Uh, so they're mobilizing the country. They have a lot of resources available. Uh, but once again, you've got, a, you've got a very sticky situation that even if you have the best capabilities there are, how do you employ these in this particular scenario, this situation? Because as soon as Israel uh, you know, strikes back in, in any similar type of a way, uh, targeting civilians, you know, it'll be all over the news and we go back to that concept of lawfare. Uh, and the battle for uh, the news. Brigadier General Retire Doug Slocum joining us this morning. Jimmy Sangenberger in for George Brockler. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, let's talk a bit more about the missile and rocket battle that we are seeing in not just Israel, Gaza, but Hezbollah, and of course now with the situation broadening, Yemen and so forth being brought into the fold here with more dynamism in the situation and not the good kind of dynamism. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with much more as we continue an insightful conversation here on Denver's Local Talk Leader News Talk 710 KNUS. Coming up here on the bottom of the 7 o'clock hour, Jimmy Sangenberger in for George Brockler this morning here on Denver's local talk leader, News Talk 710 KNUS. We are talking with retired Brigadier General of the U.S. Air Force, 35-year veteran Doug Slocum. His call sign was Odie when he was a career fighter pilot and the last five years served as the 100, the commander of the 127th wing of the Air National Guard. And uh, General, I want to pick up on our conversation, particularly looking for a moment at the biggest piece that we have seen in this war between 
Israel and Hamas, which is the use of rockets and missiles. And we're seeing this more in the region writ large, not just in the Gaza Strip area. But when it comes to the use of these missiles, one of the key components here, of course, is Israel has their Iron Dome system, which is proving very effective, although clearly not 100 percent. But it has made a, a big difference. Talk to us, if you would, a little bit about that dynamic of the use of rockets in this war. Well, you you bet. And it's nothing new. This started, I mean, decades ago. Iron Dome was designed based on this threat and a counter to it. But uh, not sophisticated, relatively cheap easy to manufacture uh you know rockets can be any degree of technology uh from very basic short range unreliable up to what we see now used by the military which are very capable guided long range etc um but what started out as you know some simple rocket type of a threat uh certainly has involved both in terms of quality and quantity because uh, what we saw happen um you know a couple weeks ago was literally thousands of rockets in that first 20-minute period. Um, Iron Dome is a very capable system, the Tamir missiles that fire out of there, uh, but there are only so many missiles that are ready in the batteries. I believe it's the six uh, batteries of this system that Israel possesses. Um, so once you intercept a couple thousand rockets, uh, you know, at some point you're, you're out of missiles. So it becomes a quantity battle at this point. Hezbollah has understood that. That's why they've stockpiled so many. Um, and I think that's exactly what we saw happen uh, in the South was simply that the, the supply of these very capable uh, weapons, not just did they have them, but were they at the ready, uh, quickly was exhausted by the, the sheer weight of the quantity of things being launched by uh, out of Gaza. The other is that the rockets can be launched from these urban areas, from uh, the churches, the mosques, the hospitals, these types of places that are very, very difficult to strike back. Capabilities nowadays, you can very quickly put uh, weapons on a launch site. Uh, so the goal of Hamas is going to be to launch them from a place where it's precarious to be able to strike back and then, of course, shoot and move or shoot and hide. Um, and that's what we're seeing. It's a tough problem to solve. It goes back to, you know, this geography that we're not talking about a whole lot of uh, property here when you're talking 30 miles by five to six miles wide and rockets that now can pretty much reach anywhere in Israel from Gaza or from uh, Lebanon. So it puts the whole country at risk. Uh, they are developing a follow-on to the Iron Dome uh, that's actually going to be a directed energy laser type of a weapon. So think of it as a limitless uh, uh, magazine of capacity to shoot things down, but uh, not operational yet that I'm aware of, uh, but certainly technology in the future. So it becomes a you know tit-for-tat. Uh, as we exchange technology for the answer to the threats. How significant in this way, then, General Slocum, is it for the United States to continue to provide financial support to Israel, particularly for their Iron Dome and missile defense systems? Because, of course, this is something that can be a big issue for some in Congress who aren't as on board with this, who are skeptical, who won't even answer. We played a clip yesterday of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, where she refused to answer uh, whether she would support funding for Israel's Iron Dome. How significant is that support from the United States for Israel, particularly given how big of a deal this missile defense system has been in this war? 
Well, very specifically in this case, uh, I mean, it's a missile that's designed and built in Israel. So it's nothing. I mean, we can fund it, but there's still the problem right. of that supply and production. Uh, we have purchased some Iron Dome systems to check them out and assess them uh, in the United States. I would be surprised if we haven't offered very quickly to return those batteries that we've purchased as well as any inventory of the missiles you know, back to Israel. And that's just something that could be done uh, most likely without even congressional oversight in that case. Um, but there are things, uh, just like Israel learned in 1973, is the stockpiles of weapons they had vastly underestimated the expenditures when it comes to a large shooting war. And just like what we're seeing now uh, going on in Gaza, one of the biggest demands is for artillery shells. You know, Ukraine has shown us that they can go through copious amounts, and we've been scouring pretty much the whole Western military capabilities uh, stockpiles of that uh, that weapon, that, you know, the, the, the shells for those uh, artillery systems. And, well, guess what? That's exactly now what's being demanded in Israel. Um, Precision-guided weapons of all sorts are also, you know, there's nothing we, we drop nowadays, we in the United States, uh, 100% of what we drop off our airplanes or shoot is going to be guided precision. Um, and we build things now that are smaller with smaller warheads to have a smaller footprint. Uh, because you think in Gaza, you know, 500, 2,000 pound weapons make a really big crater. And that's a tough thing to do in a populated area without having, uh, you know, collateral type of damage or casualties as a result. So the demand for those precise high-tech, high-cost type of weapons certainly would be part of any uh, supply that we would be looking to give to Israel. In terms of the um, desire to avoid civilian casualties, of course, Hamas would like the world to think that Israel will indiscriminately kill civilians like they do. We saw that with the aftermath of the blast at the hospital, of course, where there was this idea that folks were thinking, oh, well, of course, Israel would do this because they're willing to kill innocent civilians. But of course, Israel goes through great lengths to avoid civilian casualties to the greatest extent possible. And greatest extent possible, of course, is the operative term because we are talking about a terrorist organization that uses innocents, including children, as human shields. Can you talk to us a little bit about, from your understanding, what Israel tries to do and how they can even avoid civilian casualties with these kinds of dynamics that are in play on the ground? Well, and they've been you know, through the years have actually gotten very good because, you know, this goes back to that lawfare thing and the war for the airways and there's phones everywhere uh, and cameras that are going to take pictures and document things. Um, you know, Israel talks about, you know, the phone calls to a house um, where they would basically say, hey, you get so much time to get out. They would give them a warning uh, before striking uh, to try and get the, the civilians to evacuate. And I think that was the genesis of that evacuation order that they gave for northern Gaza, basically tell everybody to move south. Uh, they clearly see that the infrastructure and the problems in northern Gaza are the biggest threat. Uh, so they're trying to evacuate and get most of the civilians out of the way to minimize civilian casualties. Uh, but like I said, there's also using now the more the smaller, more precise weapons um, you know, the U.S. has figured this out even in our campaigns everywhere. Uh, we, you know, we've designed weapons with very, very small warheads all the way to missiles now that don't even have warheads. Uh, and we can be precise enough to say there's two people in a vehicle, hit the one in the right seat, not the one in the left. 
um, you know, that degree of precision uh, because of perception of civilian casualties and, you know, trying to not be that uh, person around the world, in our case, the United States. Here, it's Israel and Gaza. They don't want those pictures that are out there. Now, no matter what they do, there's always going to be the fake pictures. You know, you blow up a building, you know, that happens to be a headquarters of Hamas, and somebody posts pictures from something else and claim that it's from there. Uh, so there's always going to be that perception battle that's going to be going on. General Slocum, one of the big questions that has been going on in the last couple of weeks is why Hamas would do this when, as you pointed out, militarily they can't go toe-to-toe with Israel, but of course they use these tactics that uh, bring about the maximum amount of destruction and death that they can bring. When we look at Hamas's rationale for this and the timing, especially given that we know that this is backed by Iran, that this is driven by Iran, financed by Iran, uh, how do you look at the motivations, especially for that timing? I mean, it happened the day after Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi government were talking about the uh, uh, po- potential for normalizing relations with Israel, building upon the Abraham Accords from the Trump administration and talking about a possible defense pact between Saudi Arabia and the United States as a driving motivation for this. And of course, you had multiple Jewish holidays that were intersecting in that weekend of October 7th. How do you assess the motivation behind this and why then? Well, you bring up excellent points with all of that. My mind goes there. There's clearly some differences, but from a strategic standpoint, uh, you know, what you're bringing up uh, makes me think of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. Uh, what was clearly a tactical disaster on the part of the, the Viet Cong. I mean, yes, they made strikes all across the country. It caught everybody by surprise. Uh, they ended up taking disproportional casualties and pretty much ending, getting wiped out as a fighting organization uh, in that war. Then that came, you know, the North Vietnamese ended up taking over more directly instead of through the Viet Cong. And I bring that parallel up because Hamas, in this particular case, knows they can't, uh, you know, go toe to toe equally with the IDF. But in this case, they gave them the bloody nose. They have the shock value. Uh, So now the question is, what are going to be the strategic repercussions? I mean, there could be an argument. What's going to happen to the Netanyahu government as a result of this in the long run? So they're affecting a strategic equation through what they're doing, even if you wouldn't call it a tactical success. Um, So the timing, uh, a lot of that can be simply to catch people by surprise, to maximize the shock value. Um, And I think that's why we saw the degree of brutality that we did, is they are exactly looking for that type of terror response and reaction out of Israel. Well, and, and then in the Arab world, I mean, you put Saudi Arabia in a box, don't you, General, if you have this attack happen amidst the discussions of normalizing relations with Israel, which would be dramatic in the region. I mean, it's one thing for the United Arab Emirates, for example, to make a peace deal with Israel. It's another thing for Saudi Arabia to finally come out, even though they've been having back-channel negotiations for years and clearly had to sign off as the, shall we say, the uh, Sunni Arab big dog in the region. Uh, when it comes to the other compared to the other countries, they had to give a subtle. Yes, it's OK for you to do this. So if you put Saudi Arabia in this position of, hey, uh, 
look, do you really want to be on Israel's side right now? Then they're in a box that is more difficult to get out of, certainly in the short term. And so to me, that that is one of the the big things in addition to the, the uh, aspects that you were talking about. And, you know, yes, the ripples from this rock in the water, you know, carry Saudi Arabia was a big one because the initiative is going there to normalize the relationship. But you can just look in the surrounding region, you know, Jordan uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place on how to react to Israel. Look what's happening in Turkey. We can go all around the world to include in our own country uh, the impact of what's because of what's going on in Gaza. So um, and now the question is comes about broadening of the conflict. We could you know talk about Hezbollah and Lebanon and what's going there, of course, which is uh, the vicarious extension of Iran itself. Uh, and then we've seen the development in the last few days between the missiles that the USS Carney, a U.S. destroyer in the Red Sea, intercepted yesterday or the rocket and drone attacks on our base in southern Syria as well as al-Assad in Iraq. Um, now the U.S. is shooting weapons in the Middle East as part of this conflict. Right now they've been defensive weapons, but how much is the U.S. going to be able to stand of our citizens being killed or our forces under attack as part of all this? So it's all tightening, tightening that uh, uh, noose a little bit uh, that's going to be driving people's people slash countries' reactions. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned Iran because that's worth discussing a little bit more and fleshing out the role of Iran, which is behind all of this. Here's a snippet of President Biden last night acknowledging that Iran is supporting Hamas. And of course, there are many other groups like you just talked about. The risk of conflict and chaos could spread in other parts of the world, in the Indo-Pacific, in the Middle East, especially in the Middle East. Iran is, is, is supporting Russia in Ukraine and is supporting Hamas and other terrorist groups in the region and will continue to hold them accountable, I might add. I was glad to see Biden actually give some acknowledgement of Iran's role here, especially after having given $6 billion to Iran as part of those negotiations. Uh, but when we look at Iran, you see Hamas, you see Hezbollah, you see Yemen and the Houthis there, you see a variety of different areas where they are getting involved, and these are all proxies for Iran what is the significance here, especially from an American policy perspective, of Iran meddling in these ways and not just meddling, but actively saying, hey, we want our proxies to engage in these kinds of activities, including a war with Israel? Well, and that's driving a lot of what we're seeing here. Um, you know, you go we could talk long on any of these different areas that you just brought up because you hit on so many different things, the Houthis and Yemen, uh, the ongoing uh, war that they've been having with Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, is a perfect example. And yet these proxy forces of the Houthis in Yemen launching missiles, which were they really heading towards Israel? I don't know. Uh, you know, the question is, were they attacking the ship or were they attacking Israel? Somebody knows the answer to that, but it's not clear at this point. Um, but involving these proxies in different ways around the world um, can very quickly complicate things. Picture, you know, some big incident in the Persian Gulf, attack on a U.S. ship named wherever it is. You have uh, a lot of people that are sympathetic to the Hamas cause and to what Iran is doing all around the world. Uh, so it brings up possibilities of trouble in lots of places. And this goes back to the we need to be prepared. 
not just militarily, but I think the biggest thing is information, intelligence. We need to have our eyes, ears, and focus out around the world, listening to what's going on, paying attention, and making sure that from a defense perspective in the United States, that we're ready to defend the interests of this country, um, you know, focusing outward the way that we should be. General Doug Slocum, our guest, We let's take a quick break, and then on the other side, just a final few minutes, get some final thoughts from you, General, as we continue with some fascinating insights from retired Brigadier General Doug Slocum of the U.S. Air Force, 35-year veteran and a career fighter pilot, joining us here on Denver's local talk leader, 710-KNUS. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, filling in for George Brockler. Final few minutes of the second hour, Jimmy Sangenberger in for George Brockler. Eight minutes before eight o'clock, our guest, General Doug Slocum for the hour, 35-year veteran of the Air Force career fighter pilot, offering a really invaluable perspective and insights this morning. And General, in the beginning of our conversation, you talked about how this was a Kobayashi Maru situation for Israel. It's sort of like a, a no-win scenario, as they talk about in Star Trek. But in this case, we're talking real world and a, a very challenging situation for Israel. We've discussed a, a variety of different dynamics and aspects. But as this continues, what do you think folks should pay attention to and keep in mind as we observe moving forward? Wow, that is a great question, uh, Jimmy, because there's a lot that could happen in all of this. Of course, we have to look at the IDF and what are the next steps that they're going to do. Uh, They've had to have considered the possibility before when they talk about eliminating Hamas. Um, How are they actually going to go about trying to do that? It's going to be very dangerous, very precarious. Uh, and eyes of the world are going to be on what's happening there. Um, so certainly watching the developments in the country itself. Um, then we take the next layers out. Egypt is a big player in this. We haven't really talked about it all with the Rafah crossing being closed. Uh, certainly uh, the Palestinian population uh, would be hostile to Egypt and thinking, you know, if they were to try and evacuate people through Rafah into Egypt, that would not be favorable to the Egyptian government. Uh, what about the proxies of Hezbollah up in the north in Lebanon, uh, as we see that continue to heat up, as well as developments on the West Bank, continuing these ripples out. Um, you know, when when people are distracted, uh, a lot of other things can happen. So, you know, one of the one of the folks that are sitting back watching, learning, uh, and one of the winners of this whole thing, no matter how you want to look at it, is China, because we're not putting the the focus on China. The defense is going to and a lot of the resources and attention to the Ukraine and to Israel, um, China, keeping an eye on what's going on there, as well as, of course, in Korea, the ongoing situation uh, in that peninsula. You know, North Korea supplied weapons to Hamas. North Korea is supplying weapons to Russia to help against the Ukraine. Uh, and they're continuing to be openly hostile to South Korea. So all these areas, we really have to continue to be diligent to watch and be ready You know, we've positioned the USS Ford, the Eisenhower Carrier Battle Group is heading over there, as well as the very capable ships uh, that can not only defend, but they also have very good sensors, airplanes that are capable. Our eyes, ears and weapons are all on the ready in the area as we uh, as we go forward. 
We've got less than a minute left, but what you're talking about, General Slocum, is how interconnected and interwoven all of these situations are. It is not like what is happening in Israel or Ukraine is just in a vacuum. Correct. I mean, they all interconnect. It's a very, very small world uh, in today, just in terms of how we can share information and how they all interact. Uh, We can ship things anywhere, do stuff. It's an amazing interwoven, exceptionally complex environment we're dealing with. Yeah, and especially when you have international actors like Russia and Iran that are engaging in a variety of fronts, that complicates things in ways that we haven't necessarily seen before, given the interwoven nature and the technology and the transportation of goods and so forth that you were just talking about. General Doug Slocum, really appreciate your invaluable time this morning and offering some insights to break down the situation in the war with Israel and Hamas. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Jimmy, it's been a great conversation. I hope I added some value in all this, and uh, thank you for having me on. You did indeed. We'll definitely have you back once again. Retired Brigadier General Doug Slocum, 35-year Air Force veteran, joining us and offering tremendous insights. Now we turn to you on the other side, 303-696-1971. Jimmy in for George, 710 KNUS. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.